The church is the people of God who are called by the Word of God and who gather together in His name and for His glory around His Word. So if you have the Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. And we'll start Mark chapter 4 this morning. Gospel of Mark chapter 4. And as God's people gathered around God's Word, we can have expectancy. God specifically blesses His people when they gather around His Word. So with that expectancy, let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is so kind of You, merciful of You, to give us this Word in front of us. Would You help us to be good stewards of this time and this Word by receiving well what we hear from it this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Maybe you've heard of the story of a pastor from England during the 1700s by the name of Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was a pastor, and he ended up pastoring a church called Holy Trinity Church near Cambridge. And he's probably most well-known because of how greatly he was rejected. When he was appointed to be the pastor at Holy Trinity Church, the members responded because they wanted another pastor instead by locking their pews that they had rented out. That time they had rented pews that had doors on each end and they had the locks to them and so they locked them up so that no one could use them. So Simeon responded by putting some chairs in the aisle so that people could come here and sit. Some of the church wardens responded by throwing those chairs out. The normal members of the church derided the churchgoers for attending these services They threw rotten eggs at Charles Simeon, at least on one occasion, maybe more, and they threw other stuff to distract services at different times. They started calling the people that were going to these sermons and these uh, church gatherings the Simeonites. So the, the religious members of the church are deriding those who would actually go and hear him preach. And they did this consistently for 12 years. I'd say that's some hard soil in that church. And what was Charles Simeon doing? Why did he get such opposition? He was preaching faithfully the Bible. Here's his philosophy. He said, my endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage that I'm expounding. Really novel idea. Let's just give them what's actually there. And for 12 years, they responded in the same way, rejection over and over and over again. And it gets you to wondering, like, how much flourishing and fruit can come from a ministry with this all around it, with this being the atmosphere, with this being the reception that he's getting? How can much flourishing come in the middle of this? Well, Charles Simeon wasn't the first one to face opposition. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has faced plenty of opposition. He's faced it near and far. He's faced it from his own family. They said he's out of his mind. He faced it from the religious elite. They came even from Jerusalem and said, well, we've made our judgment on this man. He's possessed by Beelzebul. Satan. Satan's power in him is leading him and doing the work that he is doing. Even the crowds that came around him, surely many came to hear him and to see him heal, but likely not many of them believed. He only had a small loyal following of 12 kind of ragtag people that would have been on the B team of almost any other team in the world. And in the middle of that, Mark drops us a parable, the parable of the sower. In his gospel, he drops this parable so he can help us see that God will accomplish his purposes 
in the face of, in the midst of rejection, opposition, and obstacles. That the kingdom of God will advance even in the midst of rejection, opposition, and obstacles. You see, this parable may have a lot more to teach us than that, but it certainly doesn't teach us less. That the advancement of the kingdom, it, it, it's going to come, and it may be subtle, it may be even mysterious in its nature, but it's there nevertheless. So again, Mark is going to serve us up a sandwich. He does it with this parable here. He starts with the parable itself as he describes it to the crowd. Then he's going to give the interpretation, kind of the, the purpose of the parable, and then he's going to revisit it, interpreting it for us. So he gives us another sandwich for us to digest. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4, he says this, He began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat, and he sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said this, now, in the middle of this gospel, gospels are a unique genre of the scripture, right? They're, they're historical, they're biogra- biographical, but they're also theological. They're this interesting way of writing dropped into the middle of the scripture. And, and in the middle of these gospels, there's also other genres of literature. And here's one right here. There's a parable. And so we need to think about what a parable is and then how do we interpret parables. A parable is a, a figure of speech with a comparison. It could be a, a short fictional story illustrating some sort of spiritual lesson. And because that's the parable, because that's what it is, because it's a figure of speech and it has some sort of comparison, it's easy to get into trouble. And so we need to think about how can we interpret these rightly. Well, the first thing I think we need to know about the parables that Jesus speaks is that we can't interpret them apart from the one who tells them. In other words, we don't want to interpret any parable apart from the Jesus who is speaking them out. This Jesus is the one who comes proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark says of him that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it's rightly understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he is doing that we can rightly help interpret these parables. We need to know of Jesus' life, his ministry. He comes as the one who, has this, as the Son of Man, has authority to forgive sins, cast out demons, advance the kingdom. And the context, just like in every passage, is key with the parables. We can think about parables that many of you are familiar with, like the Good Samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son. Like those parables, their context matters. So when we think about those parables, the historical setting matters. It matters that we know that when we're talking about the Good Samaritan, that Samaritans were despised by the Jews. And so when they help out, it becomes an interesting detail. It matters when we think about the parable of the prodigal son and, and what Jesus is responding to. In the book of Luke, in fifth, chapter 15, he's responding to the Pharisees who are saying, well, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so he says, well, let's tell you these parables. And he gives one of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and then this lost prodigal son. It matters the same in the Good Samaritan. You remember what he's responding to. They say, well, who's my neighbor? And he tells them a parable. That context is key to interpreting those parables. The historical setting matters, that we know that Samaritans are despised, that we know that fathers in the parable of the prodigal son, fathers, older people in that culture didn't normally run, and they probably shouldn't because I've run and it looks bad sometimes. And I'm not as old as probably the father was. Right? And we need to know those things. It helps give emphasis. It helps interpret those passages. We need to think about how would those hearers who heard it first, how would they hear it and receive it before we move to us in our day? We can note in parables, there's often stock imagery. So God is often a father or a judge or a king. There's lots of stock imagery just built into the parables that is fairly easy to pick up on. And we need to think about unusual details. So there's parables like of a, of a mustard seed. A mustard seed's a tiny seed, and then what happens to this mustard seed? It grows into this huge plant. 
Well, that's an unusual detail that we need to take note of. Parables often do that. Now, what we have to be careful of with all this imagery that's going on is that we not find some sort of spiritual lesson and some sort of theological detail behind every single thing in every parable. For instance, we think about the Good Samaritan. There are so many interpretations of this. One would say like, oh, well, the man who got beat up and robbed, that was actually Adam. And then, you know, all this other stuff came along and the oil poured out. There's all sorts of things like that. And we say, Jesus is trying to say, here's who your neighbor. Who is, who is being a neighbor to the man? That's what he was getting at. And so we need to be careful that we don't find some sort of spiritual lesson or theological detail under everything that's given in every single parable. I think instead we need to seek the main point. And often parables are driving at one main point. Now sometimes they're going a little bit further, but often they have one main point. And they might have lots of truths that all build up to give us one main point. So with that in mind, as we get this parable from Jesus, Jesus is again by the sea after having been rejected by the Pharisees, by the scribes from Jerusalem, by his own family, he's teaching a crowd. And in verse 3, here's what he says to them. He says, listen, behold, a sower went to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it scorched. It was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here is the parable of the sower. The sower sows in kind of various different types of soil. There are four different kinds of soil. There's one that's along the path that a bird comes and swipes up, or birds come and swipe up. There's rocky soil that it initially rises up, but then scorched by the heat. There's thorny ground that it rises up, and then it's choked out. And then there's good ground where it rises up, and it is fruitful. Now, in all of these soils, not, there's not some unusual detail here to take note of. Right, all the soils are given essentially the equal amount of time, equal amount of attention, and the end is, is what you'd expect. All right? If you plant in rocky soil, it grows up, it's not fruitful. You plant along the path and a bird swoops it up, like, well, that's an expected outcome. You plant in good soil, an expected outcome is that it would grow and produce some fruit. And so there's nothing interesting there. But really, when you look at this, there are only two results that matter to anyone who actually sows. There's unfruitful and there's fruitful. Three of the soils prove unfruitful, and one proves fruitful. And so there's really two results to all of the sowing. And kind of a, a mini sandwich for Mark in the midst of this is that there is, on either side of this parable, two commands. The same command on each side, bracketing it. Verse 3, he says, listen. In verse 9, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Indeed, a, another translation for this is to say, one who has ears had better listen. Right? This is all the crowd gets from Jesus on this parable. He leaves them with what they need. Here's the parable of the soils. Listen. If you have ears, pay attention. Hearing is essential for following Jesus. It's essential for discipleship. Jesus is one who came teaching. In other words, he came with words to be heard, to be received by those who are listening. It's characteristic of his ministry. He began his ministry in Mark chapter 115, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He's speaking words. He's teaching. So those who want to be part of the kingdom, 
Those who want to be followers of Jesus, who want to be his disciples, have to listen. They have to hear from Jesus. And that's his plea in verses 3 and in verse 9, is that we listen. Jesus is not followed where he is not heard. So we have to listen up. And that's what he says to the crowd. Listen carefully. And so with that command in mind, then we move from the parable where he's speaking to the crowd. And Mark moves us from that crowd then to his disciples. So the discussion with the disciples is the inside of this sandwich and is critical here not only to just this parable, but I think critical to lots of parables. Now, Mark isn't concerned like we are about chronological uh, moving through a story. He is moving for his purposes. And so likely what he's getting ready to say in verses 10 through 12 and 10 through even 20 was said at a later time, not beside the sea, but he doesn't mind. He's dropping it in there for us to help us. And so he gives us this private discussion here to help us in verse 10. And it says, When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. So Jesus is not with the crowd anymore. These words are not for the crowd. They are for his disciples, the twelve and some others, those who are also around them, some other followers who are faithful, it seems, to Jesus. Those who were rejecting Jesus, those who merely came to see the show about Jesus, weren't present. They didn't get this interpretation. Jesus says this in verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Jesus is giving them, here's the purpose of the parables, and there's a purpose. To you it's been given, to those outside it's just in parables. So the word parables do two different things. They reveal and they conceal. Different audiences, insiders, outsiders, different results. Some things are revealed. The secret of the kingdom is revealed. Some, it is concealed. To his followers, Jesus reveals. He gives the secret of the kingdom of God, he says. Now, the secret of the kingdom of God is the truth of God that's only available by revelation. In other words, these guys didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They couldn't attain it. It was given to them. They couldn't just come to this knowledge by natural means. They couldn't study hard enough. They couldn't have written down the parable and went on their own and studied and figured these things out. Jesus had to give this to them. To the insiders, he gives the secret. It's knowledge that's received, and it's received by faith as a result of hearing. In other words, the knowledge that Jesus is giving isn't just leading to less ignorance on their part. It's leading to further following, further loving, further worshiping this Jesus. For those outside... As opposed to those inside, the followers and those who are here by faith, here's what Jesus says of them in verse 11, that they don't get this secret. He says, outside, for those outside, everything is in parables. In other words, that secret of the kingdom of God is concealed. When they hear it, they only hear a story. They only hear a comparison. They only hear some, some knowledge coming through. Maybe they hear a moral lesson. They don't hear the secret of the kingdom of God. They hear words from a man not knowledge and truth from the Son of God. That's what's going on. And the outsiders are various in the Gospel of Mark so far. We have the religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees. They would be on the outside. They've rejected Jesus. We have Jesus' own family. They think he's out of his mind. They're not listening to his parables in the same way. Those are the outsiders. The crowds, at least in parts, are outsiders. These are the people that are hostile to Jesus. And to those outsiders, outsiders the parables conceal. They don't reveal. And so it makes us think, well, well, is Jesus telling parables to intentionally hide truth? To which Jesus, I think, answers, verse 12. 
He says, to those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may, they, may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6 here. If you remember the story in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees this vision after King Uzziah dies. He sees the Lord on his throne, high and lifted up, and the seraphim around him, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah is commissioned in Isaiah chapter 6. God asks, well, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then, Jesus, then God gives him his commission. And what's his commission? It's listed here in verse 12. It's not a great one. You're going to go and tell people that they are indeed are going to see but not perceive. They're going to indeed, they're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. That's his commission. You're going to go to a people that's going to be hard-hearted. They're going to reject you and your message. And actually, it seems as if it's going to further harden them. They're not going to listen to you. Isaiah is in the midst of a people who'd been unwilling to respond to God for a long time. They had the law and they'd rejected it. They walked in their own way. Prophets had come and they'd rejected and despised them. Isaiah is going to do the same. They'd repeatedly rejected both the law and the prophets. They'd rejected, in other words, God himself. And they were hard-hearted. They were hardened against the Lord so much that they wouldn't listen to his messages. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, it's quoted here by Jesus, is God handing them over to their rebellion, handing them over to their hard-heartedness. Isaiah's ministry is going to be a ministry that actually confirms the problem in their heart, confirms the hardness that's in their hearts. And so Israel, when Isaiah is ministering to them, is in a sad state. Israel is to be a light to the nations, and here they are, seeing but not perceiving, hearing but not understanding, not following after the Lord, not loving the Lord, not being a light to the nations. They were to be the, the nation that was to see the glory of God cover the dry land as the water covers the sea. And yet, they'd rejected God and cast off His reign and His rule. They were not accomplishing this purpose. And so it makes you wonder, how? How is God going to accomplish His purpose through a nation that has rejected Him? Through a nation that's going to be hardened against His message and His messenger in Isaiah? Well, the hardening of Israel didn't thwart God's purpose. Hopefully you know this. Isaiah spoke of one who was to come, and that came about. God's purposes went forward. Instead, even of being thwarted by the hardness of the Israelites' heart, God actually used them. They were part of his means to gaining his end. In other words, God calls Isaiah in the midst of hard-heartedness. Isaiah starts speaking of one who's going to carry the government on his shoulders. He's a kingly figure. But he also tells of one who's going to suffer and bear the sins of others, a suffering servant. Fit the description of one you might know. Isaiah starts speaking of him. And even though he's largely rejected, even though some of his message is to hard-hearted people who don't receive it, in his message there is still a remnant. Though many of Israel rejected Isaiah and his prophecy, God saved a remnant. They went into exile, but God maintained a few. And then they came out. And from that remnant came the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. God was still accomplishing his purposes. In the midst of overwhelming rejection, 
in the midst of even foreign enemies that God was going to bring upon them and take them into exile, in the midst of all their unbelief and the hardness of their hearts, God's purposes are moving forward. Amen. That's the summary of some of the book of Isaiah. Not moving forward in a way that they have a big army that can now finally fully put off their enemies. That doesn't happen. But in a mysterious way. Hope in a virgin giving birth who might wash away the sins that are red like scarlet. That kind of mysterious way. And this is key to interpreting this parable and the parables. So remember that Jesus, or Mark at least, puts this parable in the midst of a context of rejection. He's fresh off being rejected by his own family and by the scribes. They have confronted him head on and said, he does this by the power of Satan. And his family says he's out of his mind. And in the middle of this context of rejection, where some hear and it's hidden from them, it doesn't reveal anything to them, The parables confirm the state of their hearts. That's like Isaiah's ministry. But in the midst of that, in the midst of rejection and the hardness of his hear, there are some who hear and the secret's revealed. They hear and they receive what Jesus is saying. Those outside with hard hearts, they reject Jesus, they oppose him, but they don't thwart God's purposes. Some still hear, some still receive. God is using their rejection And working in spite of the rejection to accomplish his purposes. Here, Jesus says to those outside, they don't hear. But he's gathering with some, right? Who are hearing, who are listening, who are receiving the very words of Jesus. Twelve plus here are there with Jesus. And they're hearing and they're listening and they're receiving. So Jesus is telling us there's there's a purpose for these parables. He's using them to conceal and to reveal, to accomplish his purposes and his ends. And that's Massively important for us as we go through this parable. So what Mark is then going to take us to is he's going to take us to the other end of the sandwich here where Jesus is going to interpret the parable. He's going to revisit it and hear Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower. Verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Now there's a first big help, there's that what's sown in this parable is the Word. He doesn't give any identification to who the sower is. I think it's intentionally vague, so that it almost like it could be a ministry that could be carried on. But he does say, here's what is going on. What's sown is the Word. It's the secret of the kingdom of God. It's that the kingdom of God is at hand in the person and work of Jesus. It's that the good news has arrived in the Son of God who is Jesus. It doesn't come through earthly and political might. It doesn't come through a great army. It comes secretly, mysteriously. Through a baby born in a manger who would rise up and say, the kingdom of God's at hand. That's how it comes. It fits the description that he's talking about. It conceals and reveals. It's mysterious. It's a secret. It's strange. But it's in Jesus. So the word is the gospel. The word is the good news of the Son of God. And because it's a word, it has to be heard. Notice the emphasis that Jesus is going to to place on the hearing of this word. Verse 15 says, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, 
and it proves unfruitful. And what did you notice that you didn't notice in the first time when he spoke it? Right? Word is used eight times this time. Eight times in verses 14 through 20, Jesus says the word is sown. Four times he talks about it being heard. He doesn't use that in earlier. And so there's an emphasis being placed here on hear, which is exactly how he sandwiched it in the first place. In verse 3 and verse 9, he said, listen, he who has ears, let him hear. So in other words, there's some emphasis that Jesus is bringing to what? To the hearing. To the hearing of the word. The different soils, and the reason that they're different is how the word is received, how it is heard. And so what we're not doing is we're not getting a lesson on soil science. We're not thinking about, Jesus is not trying to say, well, let's think about how they were trying to do agricultural practices in Israel. It's not what he's doing. He's saying the word was sown, and it needs to be received rightly. So he's not saying, well, let's look at the acidity level. Don't you do that in soils? Like, how acidic is it? What's its pH values or whatever? Like, he's not doing that. It's received differently because it's heard differently. And so he's using different soils to say that there's different ways that the word is sown into these different soils, and it's a different way it's received in general. So here's what you can expect when the word is sown. Here's a variety of examples. There are many soils then that we look at where the seed is sown unfruitfully, where the word is heard with less than saving faith, where people aren't holding on to it. It quickly fades away or fades away over time. He says there could be this no positive response at all. Maybe like it's sown along the path, where the enemy comes and swoops it up immediately and takes it away, where Satan swipes the word. It's, it's like as if it's in one ear and out the other. It's, it's not even heard at all. That's what it's like. It wasn't taken to heart at all. It's as if it wasn't even spoken. Perhaps it's because the enticement and allurement of evil, that it doesn't even seem appealing to even give any sort of thought or attention to the word. Because I'm giving all my thought and attention to this thing over here. Wickedness and evil is more compelling. That's kind of like the word sowed along the path. Or there might be an immediate positive response. Do you see that one? There's no lingering. It's sown and it immediately, Mark says, rises up. Just reception with joy. No lingering at all. No holding back. Coming just as I am before the Lord. Popping up immediately. But what happens to this reception? What happens to this immediate growth proves to be false, proves to be unfruitful, because it doesn't last. Tribulation comes, persecution comes, and what happens? It dies away. There's no root. Really tall, not deep at all, and it dies away. It's interesting that, that Mark is almost implying that, that tribulation and persecution will come, and if there is no root, then it will die away. It wasn't reception that was a right reception. It was a reception that was masquerading, that not only didn't linger when it was received, but didn't linger when it was time to leave, when persecution comes and said, I'm done with this, and laid it aside. Or there's another kind of soil. There might be some genuine interest, some agreement with the word, initial reception, but then that reception fades over time, gets choked out by other things. I had a conversation with a man one time who told me, who agreed with the gospel and actually said that he would love Jesus, but he said, but I love beer and I love Jesus, and I came to a point where I had to decide. And he was serious, and he didn't choose Jesus. That's the cares of the world. That's the third soil where he's going like, there's a couple other things that seem compelling to me in this world, 
Jesus is one of them, but there's a bunch of other ones too. And he chose the wrong way. There's the slow pull of earthly power or earthly influence, or he says the deceitfulness of money. And that can grow up alongside this initial reception and lead to, once again, unfruitful sowing. And it can be really subtle. Likely you've heard this among our culture. This seems to be prevalent in our time where people agree with Christianity and the gospel and actually aren't against it at all or probably for it as much as it can be, but say something like, but I'll get to that later. Right now I want to have fun. Or right now I want to do this. We'll get to that later. That could fit into this setting of the soils. And all three of these ways of receiving, of hearing the word, are are completely unfruitful. The soil is different, but the end is the same. There's no crop. There's no harvest. And for a sower, that's devastating. So these three soils reveal all sorts of obstacles. right? If Jesus is talking about, here's how the word's going to be received. Here's how the kingdom's going to advance. We're going to sow the word. We have a big problem. Three soils are fruitless. There's a vicious enemy who is actively trying to prevent the word's work. There's tribulation and persecution that's sure to come that's going to choke out some. There's the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of money. They're going to rise up too. They're going to put a stranglehold around some. So in other words, it seems as if there's three soils, they're all fruitless, and there's a lot of fruitless sowing. Jesus was rejected by those who were near him. He's rejected by those who are far away from him. There's all sorts of rejection surrounding the Son of God and his ministry. But he looked around and he saw some and he said, here's my family. The hard, the unfruitful soils are many, but they are not all. Verse 20 speaks of one last soil. But those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. And they bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. The reception in the good soil is different from all the other soils. The hearing doesn't seem to be careless or inattentive. inattentive. The word is heard, he says. It's accepted. It starts bearing fruit. And so right in the middle of a seemingly fruitless field, the harvest starts to come in. The hearing is good. It's different. Now, up to this point, if you're the sower, you're really frustrated. The sowing seems to be fruitless, and this is a fruitless field. Perhaps you would think about burning the field and going to another. Let's start over with someplace else. Seems like your sowing would have been somewhere between a waste and a complete tragedy, up to verse 20. Still, you read verse 20, and you're like, well, one out of four doesn't seem very good. One out of four, it lands on good soil. That's not great. But look what happens in this good soil. From the good soil, he says, here's what happens. It starts bearing fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, that's a unique detail to take note of. From everything that I could find, a normal crop expectancy could have been anywhere from three to eight. So that would have been good from three to eight. They said that 30 is not unheard of, but... It would be a really good harvest that year if you got to 30. Some people said 30 was miraculous. Either way, let's put that on a scale. If 30 is good, think about 60. Think about 100. These, at least, 60 and 100, are miraculous. 
Divine works of God, only given by God, only by the work of God. They're not small harvests. They are not small fruit. This is a large abundance of producing and fruitfulness in this good soil. So here's what's going on. We have three soils, and they're all unfruitful. In one soil, it is fruitful, but it's not just a little bit fruitful. It's a lot fruitful. It's very abundant. So right in the middle of three hard soils, the harvest isn't stopped. In fact, the harvest isn't even bad. You're not just counting up your losses and trying to figure out if we can break even. Like, we're not breaking even here. God is accomplishing his purposes here. In the midst of a field of rejection, a tremendously fruitful harvest starts popping up and it's happening all over. There's good soil all over this field and it starts raising all sorts of harvest. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's the secret of the kingdom of God. It's small. You can't even see it working. Then all of a sudden this harvest is beyond what you can believe. It's a divine work of God. Jesus tells a parable. Many don't get it. Just a few do. To a few he reveals. That does not seem like a strategy for success. But Jesus isn't interested in in earthly strategies for success. Jesus is interested in establishing a kingdom. He's going to do it in a way that's going to glorify the king of that kingdom. And he is not going to leave a few. He is going to bring with him a whole bunch. He uses his way. In those few, the harvest starts to multiply. 30, 60, 100. Divine work of God starts working in normal soil. Good soil. It happens mysteriously, like a baby in a manger, like a mustard seed being planted, like 12 B-teamers being pulled in by this one Son of God and being taught and then sent out and turning the world upside down. That's how it happens. It happens through small towns teaching by the sea where you have to actually go out there because no one would naturally be there because they're in a wasteland. That's how it happens. It's a mystery. It's a secret. And here's what's going on. The kingdom of God is advancing no matter the opposition. Three soils seem unfruitful. There's all sorts of rejection of the word that's sown, and yet here comes good soil, and it produces an abundance for the harvest. The kingdom of God advances, in other words, in the midst of rejection and obstacles. God is always accomplishing His purposes. So the question for us, is God accomplishing His purpose in you and for you? Mark writes that we would get in on the secret we don't have to be outsiders. We don't, have to be fe- we don't have to feel like outsiders. Mark wants us to be in on this. He gives us the interpretation. He says, here's what Jesus' word says. He's been telling us who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's been showing us who Jesus is. Here's what he can do. He has authority over all things. And then he wants to let us in on the secret so that we could be good soil and hear and receive with faith. So how do we get in on this? What is he even emphasizing all through the parable? The question on how we get in on the secret is all a matter of how we hear. Different soils are different hearers, different ways of hearing. Remember, verse 3, listen. Remember, verse 9, if you have ears, you need to hear this. Here's what he says. Four times he says it in his interpretation. These are those who hear the word. We need to hear rightly. There is fruitless hearing, all sorts of fruitless hearing, but there's also fruitful hearing. It's hearing that receives it, accepts it, and starts bearing fruit because we trust in it so much that we couldn't do anything else. We don't have anywhere else to go. Where else could we go? This is the word. We're going to hold on to it. That's the hearing Jesus wants. There is hearing with faith, and there is hearing without faith. That's what Jesus wants us to ask. How are we hearing? What kind of hearing are we bringing to what Jesus has to say to his life 
to his work, to his ministry. How are we hearing Jesus? It's not the first thing to get to in this parable, but I'm sure you've been waiting for this, like, well, what kind of soil am I? And I think that there's a, a caution there. Jesus doesn't go there. I'm not sure that, it, I don't think it's inappropriate to do that, but he doesn't go there first. So let's put the, the parable, what he interprets it, how he interprets it first, and then let's take it from there and be cautious with that. I think it is appropriate to ask, though, what kind of soil are you? If you could place yourself on one of these four soils, which one would they be? Likely, if you're the first soil, you probably don't know it because you probably have just tuned out completely. But maybe this is God's opportunity to listen for the first time. Where are you? What kind of soil are you? Reflect. Think about it. Which soil fits your reception of the word? Do you find yourself in hard soil? Where maybe it seems right, but I got other things on my mind. Maybe it seems right, but I know that if it gets tough, I'm letting this one go. What kind of soil are you in? Has your hearing and your reception of the word been revealed, been exposed by the allure of evil, tribulation, persecution, cares of this world? Have you been revealed as fruitless? Are you hard soil? Here's the good news. Hard soil can change really mysteriously too in a way that we don't even know how to explain it. Outsiders can become insiders. It happens all the time in the Gospel of Mark. Those who don't know the secret can receive it and have it revealed to them. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word, which is sown. It's not about putting the right fertilizer in your life or watering with the right technique or whatever everybody will say about this parable. It's about hearing the Word with faith. That's what's needed. It doesn't take some sort of silver bullet or magic formula. It takes listening to God's Word with faith. That is our encouragement. Listen with faith because that's what's needed. That's why Mark writes that we would hear about the Son of God with faith. That we'd believe on Him. It takes hearing with faith. Hard soil changes and transforms all the time. The Apostle Paul wasn't always an apostle. He was once a man named Saul, and he was literally on a path because the word had been taken away from him how many times? And he was on a path to destroying all those who he could even hear the word of God. And on that path, Jesus shows up and changes his soil. This time he hears with faith. Soil changes all the time. I think of John Newton. It said before he was 16, he had taken up and laid down his profession of faith. Before he was 16. You, are you under 16 and have you thought, I believe, now I don't believe. 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 He did it four times. And then he be, for a long time, he didn't become a Christian either. <laughs> then just like, at 16, then I figured it out. No, at 16, he started getting on slave trades and working in the world and loving it. And it wasn't until God interrupted his life that the soil changed. And he cried out for mercy from the Lord because he heard with faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Charles Simeon, he had a hard soil at his church. Twelve years. They're trying to get him out of there. That's a long time. He stayed 54. Soil was hard. Started turning because the word kept going out. He started discipling men. One was Henry Martin, famous missionary started working among college students as well. 
ministries that we have today that are to university students, a lot of them have really strong connections with what he did in the 1700s. The word was sown. It was really mysterious. Twelve years, it was fiercely opposed and rejected, but the kingdom of God advanced. And out comes a crop. Thirty, sixty, one hundred fold. Now look around. How many of us could say, yeah, I was hard soil. And I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden I heard and I believed. And now I won't let go of it because Jesus has the words of eternal life and I have nowhere else to go. It's bearing fruit. Look around. Mark, he writes us, sowing the word still that through this gospel, our hard-soiled hearts might receive with faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Hard soil is no hindrance to the Lord. It is no obstacle in accomplishing His purposes. He will accomplish His purpose. Is God accomplishing His purpose in you? Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for changing my heart and letting me hear the gospel and believe it and turn from my sin and begin a life of following you, of fruitfulness, certainly not perfection, but you have continually changed me and made me into a person who is more like you and not describing something unique. God, that's the story of every single Christian. We heard your word and we believed, and so we want to thank you and praise you for the gift of faith, for granting us repentance and making us your sons and daughters. We don't deserve that. We're so thankful that you opened up our ears. Um, And now we are sowers. Thank you for leaving the parable vague, Jesus, so we know that you're not the main one who does this. We continue to do this in your name. And we want to be like you. We want to scatter seed all over the place, not just where we think it will be Received or where we think that it's safe or welcome, but we want your good news about how you came into this world and died for our sins and rose from the dead and can give us eternal life. We want that news to be on our lips all the time and just coming out of us joyfully, not that we have to to be super strategic and think of all these kind of weird ways we can work you into a conversation, God. We just want our joy in you to just flow out of us. Be something uh, like the first disciples that we can't stop talking about what we have seen and heard from your word and seen in our lives, God. Uh, Make us those kinds of people. And Lord, as we So your word, I pray that we would put all of our faith 
uh, in what happens and how that's received in you because you're the one who does that magic. Uh, they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting you, and they're not believing because we've said it so well. They're believing because of you also, God. So will you take our pathetic attempts at sharing your word? Will you take our lame attempts at living a holy life and loving people? Will you take that and make it your agent to change people's hearts? God, we want to see your kingdom grow and extend. We want people to be rescued from hell and death. We want people to know the joy of salvation, God. So give us boldness and also give us peace and a deep faith in you as we do this, Lord. And thank you that your word's gone out today and that your word goes forth every time we come together. We're not going to have a worship service to you where your gospel is not clearly explained through song and prayer and sermon and even today through baptism we get to celebrate fruitfulness we get to celebrate the change of hard soil into good soil through your power and we rejoice in that Lord but I lift up any hearts in here today who are at different places of hardness that whatever it is that is holding them back whether it's the fear of being weird, the persecution and, and tribulations that will come from really believing your gospel today, and, and it's real. Even in this city, it's real. And if the, the hindrance is sinful pleasures of this world, God, will you melt all of that away and let them see that knowing you is a far greater pleasure than anything that this world has to offer, Lord. Let them cast that aside and bow before you and become your disciples, subjects of the good and loving king who created this world for his glory, God. Pray that you would grant repentance and faith and, and, and change soil today, even as we've heard your word and sing to you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much for coming for us. In your name I pray, amen.